Well, your Bibles are open, your journals are ready. We're on our next to last week in the study of Philippians today, and then next week uh, we'll wrap things up. One of the consistent criticisms I get as a pastor and preacher is that I don't talk enough about money. I can live with that criticism. Uh, but today, guess what I'm talking about? Money. Um, but no worries, the text is talking about money. And that's how we roll here. We just teach the text as it unfolds in front of us book by book. And so today is on this topic. I think you will enjoy and learn much and see how God wants to use us and our resources in His work. So it's Philippians chapter 4. As we begin reading in verse 15 in a bit, understand we're not talking about money from the aspect of prosperity. That's not our angle. It's not our goal. Instead, we're looking at two main ones in the text, and that would be provision and a promise. But what those two will show us is that they reveal a third angle, and it's called um, God's eternal glory. And I think these three angles that you'll see unfold in our text give us the fullest picture of biblical partnership. And if you recall, that really is the theme of the book of Philippians. It's the joy of gospel partnership. And we're going to learn today, as this book kind of comes to a close, uh, what a true biblical partnership looks like. And it's found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 to 20. So your Bibles are there. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like one, if you just slip your hand up, we'll be glad to give you one. You can take it home with you. Uh, church, we say this often, that it's the Word that does the work. And so if your eyes aren't on the text in some fashion, you may just kind of feel like you know, a little lost. And we want you to have as much advantage as anybody in understanding God's Word. So if you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. Ushers will bring you one. I'll begin reading in chapter 4, verse 15. Here's what the Bible would say to us in Philippians 4. <clears throat> and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, and by the way, this would be the end of Acts 16 into Acts 17. He says, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. This phrase lets us know why Paul and the Philippian church were so tightly woven together. They were a consistent partner. They were a first partner. And he loved them. He was close to them. He helped plant the church. And they were a consistent supporter of his. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Now watch this qualifier here. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am fully supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And the church says, Amen. Now, in these six verses, Paul establishes for us and gives us a real clear picture of his partnership with the Philippian church. He does this in several ways, what I call streets. And we're going to see three streets that converge, three streets that end up at an intersection, the intersection being partnership. 
And each of these streets is important in helping us understand the fullest picture of biblical partnership. Notice street number one. It's found in verse 16. It's the street of human provision. We'll just call it that. You'll see in the phrase, you sent gifts for my need. Maybe underline that phrase in your journal, in your Bible. Paul here is simply saying that on a consistent basis, you sent financial help to me. You sent relational help to me in the form of Epaphroditus. You were a partner in that God used you to provide for my needs. This is what churches do for their partners on the field spreading the gospel. We help them by giving financially. And so there's no way around this part of the text. This text does talk about in some way and to some degree a financial element to partnership. In fact, can I just have you notice the words that have a financial ring to them in these verses? Let me walk you through them real briefly. Look at verse 15. Shared, giving, receiving. Look at verse 16. Gifts. Verse 17. Profit, account. Verse 18. Supplied, provided. And in verse 19, the word riches. I mean, you can't miss the financial leaning of these verses, that there is an element in which Paul is saying, thank you for partnering with me in your resources. Now, I love the way in these verses we get two um, um, critical understandings of what spiritual giving is. First of all, spiritual giving is a spiritual investment. And when I say spiritual giving, I actually mean financial giving of our resources, the physical act of giving. It's a spiritual investment. One of the most intriguing verses in all the Bible is in this section in which Paul says that he wasn't seeking the gift, but he was seeking the profit that is increasing to your account. I think that's extremely intriguing that Paul is saying, when you give, I'm not after the gift that's actually being given. I want you to know that what you're doing shows dividends to your account eternally. Like, that's amazing. Think about that. When you give financially to God's spiritual work, something happens in heaven's bank account. Your spiritual eternal dividends are growing. Heaven has an incredible ROI. And that's what happens when you give. So I want to encourage you just to, not to overlook this verse. Spiritual giving is not a matter of deduction. It's a matter of return. But in heaven, it reminds me of Matthew 6 when Jesus Christ said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So something's happening in heaven when we give on the earth in a physical, tangible, even financial way. Notice he says also that giving is spiritual worship. So it's spiritual investing and it's spiritual worship. I draw this from the words used. Oh, end of verse 18, your eyes on the text. Look at this with me. He says that their giving was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. Those are very Old Testament-like words. Think of Leviticus and the uh, sacrificial system that was employed. These were words used to describe that. Think of Deuteronomy. Uh, 
I think it's in chapter 16 where he talks about the free will offering you could bring to God. And so Paul here employs language that indicates worship, letting us know that our giving is not only spiritually investing, it's spiritually worshiping. So in light of these two principles, just on street number one, that when God uses people to provide for the means of those who are spreading the gospel, when churches partner with others and provide for their means financially and humanly, like in this horizontal relational way, he says two things are happening. It's an investment with eternal dividends. It's an act of worship. Let me ask you this question. Are you investing eternally through the worship of spiritual giving? It's just a simple, put your cards on the table question. Are you investing in eternity by giving spiritually? This church's example is, yes, they would and they were. And Paul is commending them for being that kind of partner. Let me just kind of drill down a little more with you and share with you how that happens at First Family. We have a number of partners in places across the globe. When you give, part of your gifts are given to them as they spread the gospel. Within that section of giving, let me share with you what happens to part of it. This is a beautiful illustration of, of the power of, of collective gifts. So part of our mission's dollars go to what is known as the cooperative program. The cooperative program is a, I'll use the word fund for those who are in the financial world. Um, you could use a word collection. You could use the word pot. Uh, it's a fund that's contributed to from 47,000 churches across America. We're one of those. And we give to the cooperative program as part of our missions giving. Out of that fund to which 47,000 churches give, Here's what happens. Here's a part of what happens. And, and just think about the exponential effect of your dollars now going to that. This is amazing. First of all, 3,500 international missionaries and their families are supported. From that collection among 47,000 churches, we're able to provide human provision for 3,500 missionary families in all parts of the globe. Those are families that don't have to raise support. They're simply funded by this cooperative program. It's an amazing work. In addition to that, there are about 6,000 North American outreach workers and chaplains who work in various branches and areas spreading the gospel. So that's 6,000 plus 3,500. Those 6,000 North American workers and chaplains, they also work with your funds that you give to this cooperative program to see 1,200 churches planted every year. That's fantastic. And we know from the stats that when churches are planted, evangelism goes up. We're for that. In addition, there are six very sound conservative seminaries that are generously funded through the cooperative program, training the next generation of Christian workers, pastors, missionaries, Six. They're not completely funded, but they're partially, but generously funded. In addition to that, when there are crises and tragedies in our borders or outside of our borders, 
that cooperative program helps what we call send relief and disaster relief efforts. So being on the ground in times of fire, earthquake, hurricanes, uh, it's a disaster relief effort that's on par with Samaritan's Purse and the Red Cross. It's fantastic. That's just part of what your gifts do when you give to and through your local church. So I first of all want to say to you, thank you for giving to and through First Family. That's not the only way we give to missions. We have other partners who aren't with the Quadrant Program. And man, we support them generously. And so there's a number of things that happens with, with your dollars. That's just one of them. I hope that gives you great confidence to see this, that when you give here locally to and through your church, something bigger is happening. And if I can just add to this, something eternally is happening. Dividends are accruing in heaven when you give financially and spiritually to God's work on the earth. This is what Paul is saying. There is an aspect to partnership that's called human provision, but so much more is happening than just here's a dollar. Things are happening in heaven eternally, exponentially. So thank you. And if you want to see a great ROI spiritually, man, give to and through your local church. It's one of the best things that me and Julie do is just try to be as generous as possible. God's doing through our church here with you guys our work together with other churches to seeing God accomplish his work in the world. Well, notice street number two, would you? Human provision intersects as part of partnership. Another street that leans into partnership in the fullest picture would be the street of God's divine promise. This is found in verse 19 with the phrase, my God will supply all your needs. Now, let me pause here and say this to you. In street number one, the phrase was, you sent gifts for my need. You should underline that in your Bible, your journal. And now for street two, we see the phrase, God will supply all your needs. I'll mention this again in a moment. Just understand that those two phrases, they're the centerpiece phrases of the entire six verses. If you had to hang your understanding of what is Paul communicating in this section, it would be this. God used you to meet my needs now he'll meet your needs. That's really the gist of what he's saying. That's the promise he's giving them, that God will meet all their needs according to Christ's riches and glory. So let's talk about this incredible promise, this promise that God will supply all of our needs. I would admit to you, this is a comforting promise. Don't you think so? That God will always supply our needs, but yet I find it quite challenging and convicting because I'm not sure I know what needs are sometimes. I confuse needs and greeds, don't you? You should be saying yes. So I find this promise very comforting, but I find it challenging at times. And is it like a, uh, and I've seen it used this way. I don't want to be this person, but I'm sure at times I, I think about like a long pull, like God, you said you'd give me whatever I need. I think I need a, and you just fill the blank in, right? I, in fact, I think this verse is akin to Philippians 4.13. Do you recall what I said last week about that verse, that it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the New Testament? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We make that verse about our achievement when in context it's about our contentment. I think Philippians 4.19 is a similar verse. I find it odd that two of the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible are within the same set of 10 verses. 
Like, what does this verse say to us? We can just give God a laundry list of things we think we need, and you're obligated. Pay up, God. Is that what's going on in this challenging, convicting, but comforting promise? Well, let's turn to context to understand truly what is God promising here when He says, I will meet and supply all your needs. What's He saying to us? I don't want to minimize it or undersell it, but neither do I want to falsely promise you something God never promised. In context, here's what this promise is. I'm going to give you several nuggets, you may want to jot these down, that would help us understand the framework for this promise. First of all, it is given to those who are in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, your first concern should not be to give your resources to God as some kind of like safety net so God can give back to you. Your first option should be to give your life to God. In fact, in the Corinthian epistles, we find this beautiful verse in which Paul says to those people in that church, you first gave yourself to God and then you gave your stuff. So if you're not a believer, can I say to you with all politeness, but in all frankness, this promise does not apply to you. God has promised to supply all the needs of those who are in his son Christ. So don't try to use God for your purposes and like a security blanket for your finances. Oh, instead, give your heart to God. Trust in Christ. This is where the promise lies. It's to those who are in Christ. It's also, and just hear this well, it's to those who are in Christ who are sacrificially giving. The promise Paul gives to these believers in Philippi is to a generous, sacrificial church. I've often wondered, do some of us perhaps think that God will take care of all of our needs on top of all of my selfish, consumeristic spending? Just think about it. The promise is in the context of a sacrificial church. Third, Paul uses the word needs here, and it does mean material needs. There's no way around it. The illustrations of the Philippians who are giving to Paul to help him. But the word is also used in the New Testament to describe spiritual needs. And in its clearest meaning, the word defines that was which is essential whether physically or spiritual, in times of suffering. It's what does it take to survive? Third nugget of context. This promise is given from one who knew that Christ would give him the strength to be content in all situations. I don't want to put a huge gap between verse 13 and verse 19. I think they're in the same general context. And so whatever it is that God promises to supply is somehow tied to his strength in us to be content. Know this too, that Paul had both material and spiritual concepts in mind. I mentioned this earlier. So he's not just thinking about maybe external matters, but also internal matters. And then lastly, notice this about this promise. This promise is a reciprocally understood promise. Now that's kind of a mouthful. Let me walk you through it. In other words, it goes back to what I said about the language. Paul is promising them that God will supply their needs because he watched God use them to supply his needs. Does that make sense? So there's some reciprocal language going on. I saw God use you 
in my case, to supply my needs and bring me an abundance. So guess what? God's going to supply all your needs. But then he throws this in through Christ or according to the riches of Christ. So he's promising them what's necessary spiritually to face anything they're going to face and to be content in that moment. But it will come through Christ. That's what God's promising. So let me sum that up. Let me see if I can give you a simple sentence or two to understand this promise. And it may not set well with all of you. Some of you may think, well, Todd, that destroys my whole Christmas list. I thought God would give me anything I wanted. Here's, I think, the promise that God is making to his people. I draw this from Mark Keown, fantastic commentator. He wrote this about this verse, and I would agree with him. He says, this then is not a guarantee of present material prosperity. Instead, that God will provide believers with all they need so they can do all things through Christ. He's saying God will supply in the present every resource the believer needs to persevere in the faith no matter what they face. I think that's the most legitimate, contextual, accurate understanding of what God is promising. I've had some folks ask me this before, Todd, if this verse is true, that means I'll never die. Literally. They say, well, if he'll give me, he'll supply all my needs, then if I'm in a situation where I might die, I don't want to die. I don't need to die. He'll just always keep me alive. And I think that's a twist. It's, it's misusing language. It's missing the point of the context and the promise and the text. So understand this. God will give you everything needed in the moment to face every situation. And if what he's doing is finishing up your ordained days and bringing you home, then you won't need to live any longer. But even in that moment, God will give you what you actually need, and that is life with him visibly. So understand this promise correctly. It is a promise that through Christ, like 413, you will never be without what you need. It may not be your Christmas list. It may not be the items you thought you were going to get, but God knows what you need to face anything coming your way. And he has promised to give that to you. Now, here's one last nugget, because this beautifully bold promise has one more item I want to bring to your attention. It's also a proportionate promise. And this just makes my heart sing. I hope it makes yours sing and your face smile. This is a proportionate promise. Watch this. The text tells us that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It does not say he'll supply all of our needs out of Christ's riches. You see, if that were the case, it would be a deduction economy. In other words, here's Christ's riches and we have this many needs. And so we're going to take from all these beautiful riches, so to speak, and meet the needs of all of God's people. The problem is with that thinking, with an out of thinking, with the deduction thinking, these go down and these go up. The text does not say that. The text says that God meets and supplies all of our needs according to Christ's riches, which means that the gift is like or similar or in keeping with the giver. It's, it's um, both in kind and in extent like these match, meaning this. 
that there's never deduction in Christ's account. He is eternal, faithful, unchanging, abounding, merciful, always giving. So guess what? Whatever your need, Christ is fully sufficient and able to always provide it. You're never going to reach a zero in Christ's account. There's not going to be a run on the bank of Christ like, oh man, today's a tough day of heaven. Like we're short. That will never happen. And God will give you everything, all that you need, because Christ is everything, all that we need. I love that. It's a proportionate giving, not a deduction giving. And so I hope that causes your heart to sing, your face to smile as you think about what is it that you will need no matter the situation. Here's the good promise. Here's the beautiful promise that God will provide it for you according to the riches of Christ. And may your face smile and your heart sing as well this morning. Let me show you street number three, can I? With these two uh, streets converging at the intersection of biblical partnership, let me show you one that often gets overlooked because sometimes we think partnership is a two-way intersection. It's a human provision and we're generous because we know God will meet our needs, so we're sacrificial and we love those two. But I think if we only have those two, then we have, in my opinion, a less fuller picture of biblical partnership. It's this third one that's so beautiful and gives us the fullest picture. It's seen in verse 20. It's the picture of God's eternal glory. You see it there? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Now, when you see that phrase, I hope it strikes you as a little odd. Like we've been talking about money. Not the easiest thing to talk about. Paul's thanking them. He's encouraging them to continue to give and to be generous because it's worship and there's spiritual dividends accruing in heaven. And then he just kind of breaks into this doxological moment. Like, like what's up with that, Todd? Why does Paul suddenly move to a place of praise and worship after talking about giving? Here's why. In my opinion, I think Paul knows He's aware that something far bigger and far greater is happening. Watch this. I'm going to speak to you very plainly. Something far bigger and far greater is happening when we give our money for God's purposes. It's more than just a momentary memory. It's more than a feel-good incident. Something is happening in the moment that will affect eternity. God is receiving glory now and later. His weight is being reflected in our life because we're being generous and sacrificial and trusting Him. In that moment, something bigger is happening than just what we see horizontally. Vertically, God is receiving glory. And Paul says here, this is going to happen forever and ever. Now, how is that going to occur? How does God receive glory? How is the weight and the beauty and the brilliance of God reflected for eternity just through this act of giving? Partners who are working together in receiving and giving, how does that affect the glory of God forever? Here's what I think is going on. Just hear this humbly and plainly. When you give to the work of the spread of the gospel. 
I'll even drill this down again here. When you give to and through your local church, and then part of that we share with people in places all over our area and outside and to the world involved in spreading the gospel, here's what happens. In some way, the gospel is shared. And at some point, people hear the gospel. This is Romans chapter 10. When people hear the gospel, people are born again. They're saved. They repent and believe. And when someone is born again and saved, God says that what's going to happen in eternity is this. And this is uh, striking. For all of eternity, God's going to showcase to the heavenly authorities, those in that realm, He's going to showcase His saving grace in the lives of His people. To put it in the simplest of terms, God's going to exhibit the trophy case of his church forever. I'll see if I can say this. I lack the words to express this, but hear this. God will say, look at what my grace has done. He's going to point to individuals, you, me, his church, Old Testament, New Testament. It's going to be this long line of people condemned under the guilt and weight and penalty of sin, and yet by God's grace, rescued, changed, transformed. And God's going to receive every ounce of credit and glory from that for all of eternity. Now, hear hear this, church. That's the process you're part of when you give financially. I mean, that uh, really, it's hard to explain to you the motivation I feel when I think about my simple gifts going to that purpose. I hope your heart is far beyond just thinking, I've got a few bucks. It'll buy somebody a meal. No, your dollars in partnership with those who are sent goes to spread the gospel, which is how people are saved, which is what God's going to showcase forever. And hallelujah. Amen, church. This is how God gets glory forever through biblical partnerships. And if we eliminate this third street, if we only think it's about a provider and a receiver, we're really missing the ultimate vertical, eternal aspect, which I think is the most deeply motivating aspect of partnerships. Yes, we do want to help at the moment. We should. But it's not in the moment only. According to the scriptures, there are spiritual, eternal dividends accruing in accounts of God's people. And as those accrue and eternal rewards are are seen, here's what's happening. Forever and ever, God's going to receive the glory from His amazing, saving work, which was, and I'm going to use this phrase correctly here, which was possible because of the ordained means of partnership. You say, Todd, what's an ordained means? An ordained means is a human horizontal method that God chooses to use to accomplish His eternal purposes. It's like prayer. Can I just ask you a question? Do you inform God of things when you pray? The answer is no. God knows everything, right? And yet he commands us to pray. Why? Because prayer is an ordained 
means of fellowshipping with God, of growing close to God, of knowing God. And so we pray, but you're really not informing God. He's God. It's the same way with money and giving. Does God need our money? The answer is no. He's God. He owns everything. And yet he's ordained that the mechanism of partnership, a provider and a receiver, be used in such a way that people hear the gospel and are saved. And at the end of the day, it's the means by which he receives glory forever and ever through the work of the gospel, doing its job in the heart of people who hear the gospel. It's just a beautiful picture. And so I trust today, as you've heard us talk about money, giving, providing, sharing, being generous and sacrificing. You've not thought, oh man, another sermon on, you know, helping out the poor or sending to a missionary. Or I hope, hope what you've heard is, wow, my gifts to and through a local church, to those who are spreading the gospel, it has an eternal effect. What do you say we put this into a simple sentence, can we? You've already heard this multiple times. We'll lay it over the diagram so you have a visual picture today of our text. You'll have a verbal picture. Here's what we're saying. You've heard it a bunch already, but partnership is a three-way intersection. Human provision, verse 16. Divine promise, verse 19. And eternal glory, verse 20. This is really what Paul is driving at here three-way intersection of partnership. In other words, when we provide humanly because God promises divinely, He is glorified eternally. So will you just read the simple truth with me as you keep the diagram kind of in your head? Say it together, church. Partnership is a three-way intersection. Human provision, divine promise, and eternal glory. Now, I'm trusting the vehicle of your life is sitting at this intersection. And you're wondering, okay, what should I do now? I mean, your foot's on the gas pedal of your vehicle, right? Can I just give you three directions to pursue as you leave this intersection? First of all, give generously to God. There's no way around this action point. There's no way you can leave this room in the vehicle of your life after hearing this text and knowing its weight upon us and say, you know what? I think I'll just not give anything. That's not the response of a genuine follower of Christ. So in all transparency, all boldness, I do want to ask every single member of our church to continue to give or to start to give. It's what the Bible asks of us as a provider for our partners. It's the way you accrue spiritual dividends in your account. It's the way you affect eternity. It's not the only way, but it is a legitimate biblical way to impact people for eternity. And that is by being generous in giving. So as one of your pastors, I want to call upon you to either continue to give or start giving. There may be some who'll say, wow, Todd, I've, I've never seen giving quite this way. I'm going to increase my giving. 
I just want to ask you to consider obeying the Bible's instruction and the model of this church and being a generous giver. Second action, trust confidently in God. You see, when you realize the bold promise made to us that we will have everything we need from God through Christ's riches, it will cause you to be generous because you're confident in God. So we're going to give generously and trust confidently, and we're going to do both of those to the glory of God. Let me give it to you in terms that use the word worship. I guess this is all an act of worship. This entire text is really a, a worshipful a call that ends in a doxology. So I would say this to you. As a people of God, worship sacrificially. I would remind you in the Old Testament and even in the New, there's a sense in which we hear, give of your first and give of your best. I'm not one that thinks there's a percentage any longer, like a 10. I think it's way beyond that. I think generous giving is sacrificial giving, and we should seek to give as much as we can to the work of God for eternal purposes. So we want to worship sacrificially. We want to worship dependently, because when this happens, you do that because you know God will take care of you. He will. It may not be the way you think, or it may not be all that you want, but I can promise you, God will take care of you. And when we worship sacrificially and we worship dependently, that's worshiping vertically. It's a lot more than just, like I said, an in-the-moment meeting of a need. That occurs, but something else bigger and greater is happening. So this is what I want you to do this morning when you leave. You're in your car, you're at this intersection, press the gas, give generously to God, trust confidently in God, and as you do both of those, give glory to God. My prayer is that God will lead all of us and motivate us and stir us to greater generosity for His glory.